Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. This week, the creative person I talked to is Gary Goldstein. He's a playwright and screenwriter, and his new play, April, May, and June, just opened at Theater 40 in Beverly Hills. So I saw it, and it's really good, and you should check it out. All right, um, before we get to Gary, though, I want to encourage you to go to DennisAnyone.net. There you can see some pictures that go with different podcasts that I sometimes take when I go to people's houses and interview them. Uh, You can also donate to my virtual tip jar. It helps me pay for the expenses that come with doing this, and uh, I always appreciate that. And you can also email me through that. Um, And that's about it. So without any further ado, here is Gary Goldstein. Hey there. I'm coming to you from the wonderful Laurel Canyon home of our guest today, Gary Goldstein. He's a playwright, a screenwriter. He also does journalism. And the voice, the panting you may hear is his beautiful dog, Bailey. Bailey. They, you said that your dogs knew somebody was coming. Yeah, yeah. They have this, like, sense. They, 15 minutes before somebody comes, they literally start pacing and then barking, and it's crazy. They, just, how do they know? Is know. They, are you straightening things I, up? I've asked them. They won't answer me. I, just, I don't know. They, they're just psychic. I don't know. Well, I'll tell you. I was watching a report on dogs where they, the, 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 the premise was they know when you're going to come home. If you, if you keep every day because your smell has gone away. Huh. So they're like, oh, the smell's gone. He must be coming home. You know, huh. like it's a smell thing. So huh. Could be. They're psychic. Yeah. Um, you have a new play that just opened at Theater 40 called April, May, and June. I do. I do. I saw it last night and I really enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you for thank having you. me. Thank you for coming. Um, it's about three sisters and they're uh, cleaning out their house after their mother passes away. The, how, you know, the family house. Um, and things happen, and uh, their relationships and, and, and developments, revelations. Yeah. Uh, what inspired the play for you? Well, honestly, it was the title. I'm yeah. one of those writers that I come up with titles sometimes, and uh, and then I'll write a script or not. But if, right. but I, if I find a title I like, I, I start you know figuring out what to do with it. And I thought just a couple of years ago, I thought of the title April, May, and June. That's cool. What can I do with that? Hmm. Well, I've written a lot of plays. It seems not like maybe I can write a play. Okay, I'm going to write a play about it. So, what are April, May, and June? Who are April, May, and June? Ah, what if they were three sisters? Oh, and because the months are right next to each other, what if the three sisters were a year apart? So that sort of intrigued me. Um, and then I said, okay, where can I put these sisters? That's interesting. And then I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I just figured, I don't know, they're going to clean out their dead mother's house. And there's going to be a surprise. And I didn't really know where I was going when I started. I, I knew the midpoint would be they'd discover some surprise about the mother. I knew the end of the first act. And I knew the first act would be a lot of setting up and getting to know them. So it would pay off the, pay off the second act. Whatever the surprise would be in the second act, it would pay that off so that we really understood why they were reacting exactly the way they were to all the stuff that they find out. And it just went on revolved from there. So when we, in your process with playwriting, you just do you start writing scenes, or do you start with some kind of an outline, or do you just like kind of have a premise like you were talking about? Yeah, and just start. Playwriting for me is really different than, than screenwriting. When it's right. when I'm writing a, a script, you know, TV script, movie script, whatever, it's very very uh, uh, organized. Very there's a lot of uh, outlining. Um, I know what every scene is going to be. I, I write fast versions of all the scenes to make sure they work. You know, I, I'm really kind of on it. When it comes to plays, what I love about writing plays is that you can write stuff that 
would not necessarily work in a movie, and you can have lots of great dialogue tangents that just are character-driven and not plot-driven. Right. This play isn't particularly plot-driven. There, there, there's, there's uh, you know, uh, story points, but it's not like a big plotty play. You know, it's very character-driven. That's what I loved about writing it, because it's just voices and people, and you're trying to create these, like, genuine people. So you just kind of, like, move along with it, you know, and... and, and and like I said, I started I, I started writing once I knew the setting, and I knew I wanted it to be in the, where I grew up for no other reason than I could visualize it. Right. And, and all and all that. I grew up on Long Island and and uh, in a town called Valley Stream, which is I don't know if that's where this is set, but it's set in a small house on Long Island. Right. When I grew up in, and uh, and that helped frame it for me, and that was that was really a big help, so I could visualize it, um, and I understand the character, the way people talk from that area, and. And how they think, and just kind of the concerns of it. And I wanted to make them Jewish. Um, I don't. I'm Jewish, but I don't write a lot of Jewish characters per se. I mean, I write people as people, and I don't. I don't try. Just try not to, you know, pigeonhole anybody. But for some reason, I wanted to make them Jewish. And I also wanted to turn the, the Jewish stereotypes completely on their ear, um, which is what I ended up doing. So those are kind of. And also, there were things that I've never written about. I've written a lot about family, a lot about mothers, a lot about, you know bad histories of families, dysfunctional families, but never this specific thing. And I wanted to write three women, just all women, because I, I, I like writing women, I've written a lot of women, and I felt this would be a great showcase for three women. Um, and it just sort of evolved from there. It was a pretty interesting process. A birth order is something that's talked about in yeah. the piece. In other words, if you're the middle child, you have this kind of a personality, or right. if you're the younger, you're more likely to right. be like this. Right. Have you done any research on that, or just sort of anecdotally, just informally? Just on observation. Um, my, I have um, three female cousins. There, I only have three first cousins, and it's them, these three right. sisters. And they're, they're three. They're middle, a middle young, younger, middle, and older. They're, I think, three years apart. But the dynamic is not dissimilar. They're very different people than the ones in the play. But the basic dynamic, free-spirited younger one, uh, you know, worry ward middle one, caregiver middle one, uh, larger in charge older one. I mean, there's, it, the one that they're all afraid of, you know. Um, right. It, that, that seems like a pretty classic dynamic, and it's very psychologically grounded. So yeah. I like to be able to kind of start there and then, then kind of, you know, push the boundaries of, of what those, you know, types are. Right. Now, I don't want to give away what they discover, but as I was watching it, I was like, I wish I could discover something about my parents yeah. that, that made me see them differently. Yeah. Hopefully nothing horrible, but I, it seemed yeah. like kind of a neat thing to experience yeah. in a way. Yeah, yeah. I, I hadn't, it's not, I won't say it's funny, it's just ironic that I wrote, my father died last year, and I wrote this play a couple of years ago. So this was before my mother died many, many years ago. So, right. So this was like, it was just a very random thing that I wrote. But when I when my father died and I went through all of this, I literally cleaned out. He had like this massive closet, and I, I literally cleaned out everything with my sister. And I didn't expect to find anything per se. He, right. My father was a very mysterious guy, and, and yeah. he probably has another family somewhere that I don't right. know. Right, like photos of the second family. No question, no yeah. question. They're all in Canada or something. Whatever. Right. But um, but I was part of me. I was looking through stuff, like my stepmother, his wife, said to me, could you, could you and Lynn just go and clean, clean up Dad's closet? She says, I don't even know what to do with it. I don't know what's meaningful. I don't know what's not. I don't know history. I don't know. You guys, whatever you need to do with it, do with it. So that was like carte blanche to like play in the playground. And I, you know, my father was kind of a, you know, kind of a close to the best guy. And I, I didn't really, 
he, he never revealed much unless you pulled it out of him. Right. So I figured, okay, we're going to go in, and I know what the hell we're going to find. And part of me didn't want to find anything because he and I had a very good relationship, but a, but a but long history of stuff. And I don't know, I just felt like my parents were very dysfunctional, and, and they divorced when I was a kid, and I just didn't want to find out anything. Oh, interestingly, what I did find out from, from p- pulling out all of this stuff was just how much he saved and how much of things about the family that he never seemed to show any interest in, pictures of his grandchildren or, or you know, things on papers I had written that somehow he had, I don't even know how, and birth certificates and death certificates. And I just was so surprised that he kept all this stuff. And it was fairly neatly stacked away. Um, well... But so what I learned from him from that moment was more that maybe he really cared more about stuff than he really let on because right. he just didn't talk about it. Oddly, I ended up after he died, while he was, he, he had a very bad final three months, and I spent a lot of time with him. There, and crazy things happened. He was like out to lunch a lot of the time. It was very crazy. And every so often he turned to me and he'd go, "I hope you're writing this down." Because he knew that it was like great material. My father had a good sense of humor. He was like, he knew what great material was. And after he died and after enough time passed, I wrote a whole new play about him, uh, about his experience. But I completely turned it on its ear and made it this thing that never happened, ultimately didn't happen to him. But he was a great inspiration. So I had these kind of companion pieces almost, like distant cousins to each other. April, May, and June is kind of about, you know, the dead mother and my new play, which is called To My Children's Father. Um, which is something that my father always used to say in a toast, as if I'm toasting somebody, whoever my children's father may be, I'm toast, toasting that. In other words, man. it's not him. It's not him. If it's not That's him, really funny. it is. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. took years before I really understood what that meant. And right. finally I realized it was funny. That's um, really funny. And I wrote a play based upon what could have been, what, not what his last uh, you know, period of time was, but if it had turned out a different way. And it's, again, about reflecting upon... It's told much more from the father's, the live father's point of view. So, yeah, it's been, you know, we mine our, our lives and the things that are important to us. And, and in plays, you can do that much more than in screenplays where, you know, they're, you know... Something well, has to happen on page 10 exactly. and, you know, all of that exactly. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Your play did something that I love when plays do, which is when you walk in, the set looks one way. Uh-huh. And when you walk yes. out, it looks totally different. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah. What, is that fun? It's, it's well, a lot of work for the set decorator. It is, it is, and there's a lot of stuff on the set, a lot of crap on the set. And the key with me was, I knew what that that room looked like. It wasn't the house I grew up in, but but I, I saw houses like that. I and I and they were tiny houses that maybe had two bedrooms, one bathroom. Every room was kind of small, and they were built in the bought in like the fifties, but built in the. 40s, you know, they were just little cracker boxes, and that's where people grew up, you know, and it was fine, and people, and everybody had plenty of room, you know, but they, they didn't do big add-ons, and, you know, it was, that's just what life was, was like, you know, and, and so I really visualized this house. Now, we, as a joke, we call the house the pimple. That's right, why that, the pimple? Why, why the pimple? Because, because um, somebody I know, and this goes back, somebody I know was, was looking to buy a house. And she went in to look at it, and, and I said, how was it? She goes, Gary says, it was a pimple. I said, what do you mean? She goes, it was so tiny, I can't tell you. So I thought that was just a funny way of expressing the, the house. So right. that's kind of how I saw it. Now, when they ended up when they ended up creating the set, you know, we need a lot of room on the set because there's a lot of movement and a lot of packing away of stuff and a lot of, you know, chasing around the room and all this. So you need room, and half that theater happens to be a pretty wide stage. So you have to utilize the state, the piece that's there. So I was concerned that... 
that the that it wouldn't look pimply enough, small enough. Right. And yet, and yet, my director said, she said, "Well, look at it like the pimple is just it's it's like a, it's like a boil, you know, it's right. like something ugly." Right. And that's how we looked at it. Yeah. So, so that's I, what I took it from. Yeah, it's yeah. like something that was sort of yeah, just sort of uh, a little grotesque. needed to be popped exactly. or whatever. And, and, Gotten rid of. Yeah. Talk to me about this cornware that oh, figures prominently because okay. I had never heard of it. Yes, but yeah. I'm looking at it, going, "That is weird." Yeah, and yet it must have been really popular. Yeah, yeah, it was. It may still be. Um, and that came from. Uh, it's like stuff I'm deconstructing where all this stuff came from. It's funny to think about it. Um, it came from a number of years ago. I was visiting a friend in Seattle. A friend's friend, actually. I was with a friend. We were in Seattle many years ago. And she, and I never met the woman before. Very nice, very smart, bright woman. And she had this great little house, and she had this huge collection of cornware. And like she was showing it to us, and it was like all of these like individual figurines and things that all had were all like corn like. You know, everything had like ears of corn. Everything was created in like ears of corn, and 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 some of it was very junky looking and very like you know sideshow looking. And others of it was like kind of nice and cool. And I have have a feeling kind of expensive. Well, I thought about that because to me that always identified like, you know, the, the, hokey, the hokey collector and the mother in this play is kind of known as kind of she's a pack rat. She didn't have great taste. She just loved her shit basically. And, right. and she's criticized for it, but that's who she was. So when, so, so it became like its own character and, uh, and then they had to go looking for this cornware to, you know, for the set. And they said to me, where do we get this cornware? And I said, I don't know, go on eBay. You know, something like that. And sure enough, they found some of it on eBay. And then there's a place in North Dakota or South Dakota called the Corn the corn Silo or the Corn Barn or something. And it's a place that sells all of this stuff. So they got a lot of stuff from there. And one of, my, one of the favorite pieces is it's an elephant that looks, that, that, whose skin looks like an ear of corn. And we reference it in the play. It was actually written as a duck, duck with skin like an ear of corn, but we couldn't find a duck. So we went with that an elephant. That, that's crazy though. Is it expensive? Was it expensive uh, to get no, it? Is it no. collectibles? Okay. It, it, no, it, it's not. It, it's um, it's actually something that comes in like sets of dishes. You know, so yeah. you can buy like it's not like hugely expensive, but it's not like cheap. And then there's other stuff that's just stuff. You know, like the little pieces. And they found they found a great bell. You know, like a dinner bell. They found that elephant. They found like oh, they they did a great thing. I don't know if you saw it on the set, but it's so cool. They actually found drawer handles that were like ears. <laughs> ears of corn and they literally replaced this little little chest of drawers the the uh the handles with these corn handles i thought that was the best what's weird about it is like certain things like my mother collected hummel figurines but there's they're characters they're people oh they're adorable why is corn the calling to these to people that would collect that it's know. not i don't know because it's 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 like people can collect uh, clowns or people yeah collect cat, cats or 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 uh, I, I know somebody correct collects things that are dominoes you know yeah. like domino sh- salt shakers and things like that so do you collect anything do i collect anything um I don't. I can't. I, we have a lot of dog stuff here. We have two dogs, and, and we have a lot of. We're always finding ourselves buying like fun things that have dogs on them. And whenever anybody gets his gifts, it's all about it's all about the dog. So we have. We just got somebody just just gave us a, a thank you gift for something, and it was two great coffee mugs that have all kinds of dogs on them. Somebody gave us for Christmas another coffee mug with with a dog on it with with a Christmas theme. Uh, we get we get Christmas ornaments all the time that are dogs. That's, I guess yeah, we collect a lot of dogs. It's stuff. the dog stuff, yeah. but it's more like you started something and everyone else yeah, just yeah, gets it going. Yeah, yeah. Now you were at the the theater last night. There's somebody that's directing your show. Yeah. What is your role during rehearsals? Because mm-hmm. obviously the director's the director. Right, right. 
it's a very interesting process, and I think every every you know in a play, um, the writer has much more input and is is much more really much more part of things, and, and frankly, the words are much more uh, respected by the director, by the actors, uh, and by the producer than than it, than they are in TV and movies because. Um, it's just it's just the nature of it, and I don't know why where that happened, where that came from, um, but it's very nice to. It's it, I really just appreciate the respect for the words because you know you don't write you know as a writer you don't write anything without really thinking through why you're writing it. Now everything may not work once you start reading it through, and the actors get hold of it and all of that. And we had a fantastic process on this on this play of literally reading through like beat by beat of the play and really examining everything so that we made lots of great changes along the way. You know, it's like cutting, pasting, uh, trimming, amping things up, clarifying, and it was, it was fantastic. It was, it was really one of the best theater experiences I've had in terms of that because we could really, really test the material of the play. Uh, so it was a good rewriting process. Um, but, you know, the director is there to, to put a vision on it. Um, and my director, Terry Hanauer, had, I think, a wonderful vision of it, and she's great with the actors. Um, so, you know, you, you, you know it, uh, if you're a collaborative writer, which I try to be, you know, you, you support the director as the director supports the writer. Um, so it was a very, very good experience. Um, I was in, a lot, in, in through a lot of it, you know, in through certainly all the casting, all the read-throughs, all the, all the blocking. Um, the director took some time off on her own with the actresses just to sort of shape her vision. Then I, then I came back in and, and looked at it and, and uh, gave some notes and had some thoughts. Um, and then even through the preview process and, and all of that, even last night, you know, we had notes and we, you know, have ideas and, and all of that. And the interesting things about live theater is that it evolves so much that by the end of the run, it's probably the play it needs to be. You know? Right. It takes a while, it but it gets while, there. Yeah. Yeah. And you've had plays produced before. Yeah. Do you get nervous on openings in terms of like box office and reviews and stuff? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, the very first um, play that I ever wrote, it was 20 years ago, was a play called Just Men. And it was very autobiographical. And it was about my father. It, was, it had very much about my father, who I talked about. And it was about a, a, a guy of a certain age, uh, a young guy of a certain age, who ends up coming out, has to come out to his father, who he's never, his father has no conception of, of it at all. And it was, it was very much, um, I think it could even be done today. I don't think it's all that, that dated in any way. But, but um, it, it, the father is kind of like an Archie Bunker type of guy. And the, the son is, you know, not unlike me, I guess, because he's a writer. Um, and we did a stage reading of it, and I had never had that done before. And the response to the reading was so unbelievable. I mean, like, and it was a funny, I have to say, it was a funny play. And there was like, you know, foot-stomping laughter. And that floored me. And I was like, man, you know, that's, that's like, I've got to get this play put up somewhere. Right. So I was, in that case, I was so prepared for, and then, then you go through the whole process of the rehearsal, and the breaking down of everything, and then seeing the actors, what they do with the words, and all of that, and, and how they kind of make them their own, and you know, give them different life. So it's such a process of, of putting the pieces of the puzzle together that by the end, you know, all of that anticipation is kind of is kind of for me, it's kind of tamped down because I've seen so much of it. You right. Know, like last night, you know, certainly you want you always want things to go well. You, you know, you want there to be people that you know, whatever. And last night was kind of more of a soft opening. Tonight is sort of like an opening night for the patrons of the theater and the the supporters and you know the board of directors and things of the theater. Um, but I don't get really nervous about it. I just I just want things to go well. You yeah. Know? And and uh, and and I want the words to be clear. I want people to understand my intentions. Um, yeah, and a lot of it's out of your control, you know, and, and I'm also much less 
uh, minutia-oriented than I was when I was younger. You know, I just sort of like to collaborate, let things go, hope for the best, and jump in when I need to. How did this play get produced? How do you get a play produced? It's very hard. I've said, I've, I've said this to many people. I think, let's just say L.A., I think in L.A. it's easier to get a movie made than to get a play produced. Because there's no money in, in, in plays, meaning, you know, certainly not a lot for the writer, but I mean more for the theater. You know, theaters that are, uh, especially small theaters that self-produce, like Theater 40, there are not a lot of good theaters, uh, 99C theaters, that self-produce, particularly that self-produce new work, which is rare. You know, I, all my plays that, I, that I've done, I've always tried to get them done in other cities. I, I've been lucky I've had a few done in other cities, but by and large, it's like, everybody's reaction, particularly in regional theater, and I mean regional like Chicago, um, where they'll be like, um, you know, we just, we like the play, but it's hard for us to market a new play. So they'd rather do the 8,000th uh, run of, uh, of A Midsummer Night's Dream or The Odd Couple because in their in its own way, they can, even if it's predictable, they can market it. Right. So that's, People know what it is. They know what it is. So that's tricky. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a, not a, a business where people make, make much money in, but they have to stay afloat and they have to bring people in. So um, here in LA, uh, like I said, it's hard because the, the, because with a new play, there's there aren't. I mean, there are there are probably yeah, you know eight ten theater theater companies that are decent that are good you know good theaters um, that, that that do good work that have that will produce original plays. But a lot of the times, first of all. Theater 40 has a season. You know, it's kind of rare. They have an actual season of six plays. It's a subscription house. You can buy tickets, you know, if you don't have a subscription. But it's a but they have a, a base of, a, of subscribers, which is kind of rare. Uh, which, so they, they kind of know what works for their subscribers and what has worked. So, but they take a lot of chances, you know, and, and they'll do a few older plays. They don't do a lot of chestnuts. You know, they do, they do plays that have been, like they're doing ne the next play is Separate Tables, which I think is a really interesting choice. You know, it's not something that's, that's done a lot. Right. It's still an older play that has some resonance today. Um, but this season they've done, I think, two, including mine, two new plays. I saw the one that was there previously. Um, Late Company. Yeah. They're very good. It was yeah. really good. Very good play. And that play, it was done in, in Toronto, um, yeah. I think, last year, the year before. It was a very good play. Um, so they'll take chances on, on, on uh, stuff that's, you know, a little more provocative or, or you know, whatever. But, uh, but that's their rare case. Um, the way the play got to them was um, I knew Terry Hanauer, the director, beforehand. She had directed <clears throat> a, uh, a play that a very good actress friend of mine was in uh, a couple of years ago. And I loved Terry when I met her. She's just a warm, wonderful, really terrific person. And my fr uh, actress friend Robin, she had great experience with Terry. And I thought Terry did a great job with this play. So we just became Facebook friends and, and all of that. And uh, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, I was looking at April, May, and June, and it was like, okay, I have to get this play produced somehow. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to do it myself. It's like I've done that. It's just, it's, it's just, I don't have the time. It's too much work. I, I need a good theater to come in and produce it. So I just, out of the blue, contacted Terry and said, would you read the play? See what you think. And she read the play and she said, it was actually one of the best things anybody could have said. She said, she's not only did I love the play, she's, but did you know that I'm the middle of three sisters? And oh, wow, said, that's cool. This, if this was like so, you know, this was just like, you know, so spoke to me. She says, you know, I, I don't know theater wise, you know, where, you know, exactly where to send this, but I can't, there are a few places I can recommend and there are places, you know, I knew. And she said, you know, theater 40 has been trying uh, to get me to direct for them now. And then I just haven't been able to schedule wise, but this could be a great play for me to do for them. Let me send it to their artistic director. She sent it to the artistic director who was just in the process of, of deciding the plays for the 16, 17 season. 
And he read it and really liked it, got it to his board members and everybody else who makes the decision, and they said yes. And it's a little bit like the lottery win, you know, because every theater has a lot of material to look through. Right. It's like you put it, it's like putting a team together. You know, you kind of want a little bit of everything. Um, and certainly this play is different than, than things that they've done. Um, That's a happy Facebook story. It's a very good Facebook story. And it's, it's real, and it's, and it's good because, it, you know, and, and I know that these things happen kind of rarely, you know, yeah. and I really, you know, I, I, like, I, always, I just so appreciate it. I, I had a, um, a play um, a number of years ago that, another play called Curtain Call, that I had submitted to a theater up in Carmel called the Pacific Repertory Theater. It's a very good theater. It's been there a long time. And they were doing a contest. They're looking for an unproduced, they had a grant to produce an unproduced play by a California writer. So I had this play, Curtain Call, that I had done readings of, and it was, it, the readings were good, and I you know, felt there was a good play in there. So I just sent it to them, and they picked it. It, it, it won that. That's incredible. Won, won this competition called the Hyperion Competition, and they mounted it as part of their season. Um, did you go up for I it? I did. I, it was it was it was one of the best experiences that I've had. In fact, it's probably an answer to one of these questions. One of the best professional experiences I've had um, because I went up for uh, for first of all, it's you know it's this beautiful place. You know, the, Carmel is so gorgeous, and the theater right. is a great theater. Um, they had, it was a, a, a large theater and a small, a 99-seat theater. This was in their black box, the 99-seat theater. And I went up for the reading, the reading of it, with the read-through with the, with the cast. Um, and then I was there for some rehearsals, and then I came back for previews and, and the whole opening weekend. And it, it was great. And the funny thing is, it was in Carmel. There were eight people in the cast. There wasn't one of them I wouldn't have brought to L.A. to do the play in L.A. They were fantastic. Um, and uh, they did a, fant- a really great job. So, so that was another time where I really felt I won the lottery, and I just the whole experience was sort of magical. And I just constantly was like, just you know, reminding myself, really enjoy this because you know it doesn't. This kind of experience doesn't come around that often. And it's kind of how I feel about Theater Forty in April, May, and June. You know, it's just uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for it, but it's also been a good experience. Yeah. You know, on top of it, they've been great. You know, and all that, which makes a really big difference. Have you ever written anything as a playwright where you're like? Nervous about how it's going to be staged, a certain scene yeah. that's a fight or a, something violent or something sexy yes. or something where you're like, I'm asking a lot of these actors and yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. nervous about this scene, but yeah, it's important. Absolutely, because you know, as a playwright, you know, you, you have to write things that are more contained, obviously. You know, right. there's, there's a physical limit to what you can do. And yet I try not to be too, I try not to censor myself too much, you know, because you want it to come alive, you know? Yeah. Um, and, um, how so, many do we have two are there two different is it the same clock as there before? are three clocks actually I love it there are three clocks they, they, they can be turned off but I don't know it's but, fun it's part of the charm mark, but yeah. exactly um, so uh, yeah you know so I, I've, def- I've, I've, I've written uh, uh, things that are well uh, in Curtain Call the play that we did in Carmel there was a, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of uh, kind of like uh, there's a ghost in it there's a grandmother who's a ghost and that has to be, it's such a, and so, has to be played so perfectly, and the physicality and the lighting of it has to be so good, or else it just feels like she keeps popping in, you know, to comment on things, and you don't want it to look like Endora from Bewitched, you know? Right, you, that was the first image I yeah, thought of. Yeah, so, you know, it was all about lighting and physicality and the movement, her, the actress's movement and what she wore. So that was, like, one thing that I was very, very concerned about, and they, they pulled it off really well. I mean, I've done, I had, uh, in Just Men, it opens with two guys playing basketball, um... And 
as like I don't know why I picked basketball, but I did. I thought it'd be a fun, like exciting. Right. You know, it was two gay guys, and I, I and I, I wanted it to open up where we didn't know they were gay, and you know, ultimately they end up kind of in a clinch at the end of the basketball game. But that I thought was kind of a hard thing to you know to stage, to, to stage and they did it, um, and it was great. Um, and the way that we did it was like it, it, they were in what was considered the backyard of the house, even though it was just the front of the stage, you know, that kind of thing. So there was that. Last night in, in um, uh, April, May, and June, they break a plate on the stage. And I was like, I'm going for this. You know, it was it, uh, to me, it felt right. It felt like a catharsis, a moment of catharsis for April. Oh, as an audience member, you're watching her, the buildup and you're yeah. seeing it. And I'm like, she's going to break that yeah. plate. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> she's at it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I was like, <clears throat> oh, and, uh, okay, I'm going to write it. I don't know how you stage that without, especially in a theater that like that, where everything's so close, where everything just doesn't go yeah. flying. But I, I've seen it before. I know it could be done. And there is such a thing as breakaway pottery. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, it's, 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 it's made so that it literally the pieces it breaks into don't go they don't fly they just sort yeah. of you know they just sort of split apart um, and that, but this wasn't it and they just got plates and the way they do it I think is pretty clever you know yeah. and, and it really keeps it contained so I was concerned that was something I was really concerned about what have you written that you were that you were at, you felt like you were asking a lot of an actor well or that was really challenging and they rose to the occasion yeah yeah that's a that's a great question um, well I think in theater um, and, you know, if you want to write interesting dialogue and you want to write the way people, certain people talk, um, and if you, if you want to, like, take chances and have fun with it so that it's just not, you know, people just talking in a normal way, um, and you want to just have fun with the words is what I'm trying to say. If I come up with a speech that I know is kind of a tongue twister... But yet it is right for the character, and, and it's real. It's exactly the way people talk. It's not like, oh, look at me, I'm trying to write clever. It's just, just fine. You know, some people, if you really listen to people, some people have really great speech patterns and really interesting uh, you know, turns of phrases and the way they can... Some, you know, some people jam a lot of words into a sentence, right. and they probably get in twice the number of words than the average person would, and it's like, you listen to it, and it's brilliant. You know, it's like, wow. That's a, I love that. You know, so I try to sometimes do that with certain characters. So if I end up writing something a little tongue twistery, you know, I will always say to the actor, if this is too, too, just too difficult to get to get right, not because you can't handle it, but because it doesn't feel natural to you, or it's you know you'd rather say something else. Let's talk about it. You know, and generally the actor will say, no, I'm in. You know, and they will work on that. So like in April, May, and June, there June has a couple of of these speeches where like it's just like these like like they, they it's a lot of words, and she's a very chatty you know mouthy person, and you know I think that's you know to me that's I think that's a lot to ask of an actor, but there's a good payoff. You know, when it, when it works. Um, you know, if you ask an actor to cry um, uh, on demand, I always think, and that's what actors do. I mean, they're good at that and often and all that. But if it's natural and you feel like it's a moment to cry, I always like, you know, that's, to me, that would be a hard thing to just do. Yeah. Um, and yet, they generally pull it off. But I'm con- I always get concerned about that. You know, anything yeah. that feels like it's a, an emotion beyond, much beyond where we are at the, at the moment. Right. I get con- concerned about that. The older I get, the more in eye of, I am of good actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The more I think of what they do is sort of miraculous. Like, I was watching Big Little Lies the other night. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know. Have you watching I have, it? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Did you see the scene in the marriage counselor office where Alexander Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman are talking to the counselor? Yeah. And it's mostly him talking. Yeah. Just watching Nicole listen to him, I just thought... 
that's incredible. Yeah. What I'm, it's yeah. just like amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think the more time you spend around actors and the more things you see, particularly small theater or right. films or things like that, where sometimes the acting is uneven, then you really, really appreciate how great. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the Nicole Kidman's are and all that. Now that doesn't mean because you're a movie star, you're a better actor. It doesn't mean no. that at all. It just means that you really can appreciate great acting and, and the kind of the flexibility of actors. You know, who can you know? You always know, like like in an audition, I've auditioned actors and and either I or the director ever has given them a note. You know, like okay, you did it that way. Let's try it this way. And they take that note and it works. You know, that to me is a sign of a good actor. And a lot of actors, they, they'll listen to the note, they'll nod their head, and then just do, do the scene the exact same way that right. they did it before. Um, and it jumps out. I can tell generally, and not because I'm so brilliant or anything, but just because, you know, you, you, if you spend enough time around actors, you can see people when they come into audition, it's like the first couple of words out of their mouth, you know it's either right or wrong. You know, right. they, it, it sometimes is the way they speak, sometimes, especially in theater. A lot of people come in and they're not used to the stage. They don't get it out there. You know, they're kind of talking to a camera. They're looking as if they're talking to a book. And voice, I think, is very important for actors. And that's, I think, what, what differentiates a lot of people. Do you ever want to direct, or have you directed? Yeah, I've directed um, uh, a lot of readings. I've directed a yeah. lot of a lot of readings. Of, I've done screen, screenplay readings of mine, a lot of play, play readings, um, a lot of short scene events, but all these Writers Guild short scene events that we do. I've directed a lot of those. Um, I haven't directed a full-on play or anything like that. I, I have, I have, I'm, I'm of mixed emotions about it because, you know, like in this particular case, it was so great having a director that I trusted and who was, we were on the same wavelength with and we collaborated really well because she brought to the, the play a physicality and a realism of the way these sisters kind of you know, would interact and all the... Bi- well, just the way they sat on the, the couch and stuff play like that, and, you yeah. know, like, and all of that. She came up with great stuff, which is stuff that, I mean, I'm sure I would have thought of other things, but nothing, not quite like that. And plus the fact, it's nice having a director, um, again, who you're on the same wavelength with, to come in and say, you know, I don't think the scene works because blah, 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 or what is this, tell me what this line means. I don't know if I get it. And you know what? If he or she doesn't get it, probably somebody else isn't going to get it. And right. that's important. Sometimes you're a little too close to the material when you, you know, if you're going to direct it yourself. You know, on the other hand, I, I'll never say never. I mean, I'm sure, sure there are things that, you know, that if it's something that I, I feel like would, it would be right for me to direct and I have the time to do it and, and the inclination to do it, I think it'd be a, a, definitely a fun thing to do. I've certainly learned a, a tremendous amount by watching uh, all, all my directors, you know, and, and uh, you know, I have a lot of good experience to draw on from that. Now, in the uh, film and TV realm, you've done a number of movies for Hallmark. I have. I have. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I've written, it was a funny, funny how it all happened because I was writing, for a long time, I wrote, um, was writing feature films and, and I had scripts optioned, I had some films made, I, I did a lot of rewriting work, um, pitched all the time, wrote a lot of spec screenplays along the way. But the, the screen, the studio, particularly the studio screenplay business, uh, uh, script screenwriting business changed so much because they went from, there was a period <clears throat> when I first started where you could write a you know, great kind of high concept comedy and if it was a good idea and maybe you could attract some stars, even if the script wasn't great, they'd probably buy it. And then you'd rewrite it and you know, whatever, but it was all about the idea. They used to say, you can have a, a D execution but an A idea and it'll sell faster than an A execution and a D idea. <laughs> You know, That's so it was, it was all about like high, the high concept, and they were making movies like that, the Jim Carrey movies, the Bette Midler movies, um, you know, just great comedies. And that, I wrote a lot of those. I, uh, I'm not saying they were great comedies. I'm just saying I wrote a lot of these like high concept comedies. Um, and then all of a sudden, it all shifted, 
And it became like, well, the studios are buying a whole lot less. They're developing a lot less. They're really focusing on the big, the bigger budget the movies, the tentpole movies, the action movies, the comedies and the, the family dramas and the, the things that were more intimate that they were making were becoming fewer and fewer. And where they were getting made, it was harder and harder to get there. And it was all like prestige stuff or whatever. So, you know, I was seeing how that was going. Um, so I had this screenplay called The Wish List that I had written as a, um, uh, as a feature. And it was kind of a PG-13, sort of edgy PG-13-ish uh, kind of uh, romantic comedy that I wrote for, in my mind, it was Kate Hudson and Jack Black, if you can picture that. Right. It was a very mismatched souls who get together. Um, and it's about a, a woman who uh, is just having a lot of dating troubles, and she's very efficient and very organized, and she decides to make a list of, of all the traits she wants in the perfect man. And she's not going to stop until she gets the man who fills every single one of those list, uh, you know, uh, categories on the list. As soon as she makes the list, she meets the perfect guy and she meets the imperfect guy, the guy who's literally the anti-list. Right. Everything that's not on the list. And it's how she befriends the guy who's not on the list and starts dating the list guy and how, you know, little by little, the anti-list guy is really the guy for her. Um, and it's just a really fun comedy and, and, um, and Hallmark got it. They were kind of looking to start kind of getting a little more into these kind of romantic comedies, these kind of high concept romantic comedies. They knew there was a whole world of, of screenplays that had not, well-written screenplays that have, were written on spec right. and had never sold. And my agent got, got this one to them and they liked it. And they, I, re I rewrote it for them, you know, we Hallmarkized it, meaning, you know, we kind of cleaned it up a lot. Um, but uh, it came out really well, and they were very happy with it. It did well. And Who was in it? Uh, it was with Jennifer Esposito. Okay. And David Sutcliffe, who's a great Canadian actor. I know who he is. Uh -huh. I uh, worked with him on Testosterone. Ah, okay, right, right. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, he's, he was great. And, and uh, um, uh, um, a few other, uh, they had some good, they, they always get a couple of good names supporting actors sure. as well. Um, and it came out well, you know, so they ended up hiring me to do kind of a string of movies over the next... The, the next number of years, and I end up doing thirteen for them altogether. Thirteen Hallmark movies—that's yeah, a yeah, lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, they were a combination of I, I ended up selling three uh, old specs to them, which were three of my favorite scripts that I was thrilled to get made. Um, and again, rewrote them—you know—a little more for the, you know the Hallmark um, brand. But we really kept the—I think—the integrity and the, the heart of them, and I, they came out great. That's uh, so cool that yeah. you were able to find a place yes. to get it's rare. these movies that you've yeah. had in a drawer for a yeah. while. Yeah. yeah, it's really, it's rare. And it's hard because as the years go along, the, the scripts sometimes, sometimes they, they're kind of timeless in their own right. way. They just have to be updated. And other times they're really of a period. You know, yeah. It's a style, it's a concept um, that's just really of a period. It's a concern that's of a period. Um, so I've had, but I have a few that were kind of timeless, you know, and, and uh, one was a holiday movie, which was really fun. And then another one was called This Magic Moment, which was, uh, it's still one of my favorite, favorite scripts. It's about a, a, a young guy who, who ends up having a, a, a relationship with this very famous actress when she comes to his small town to film a movie. And in the original screenplay, he was like 21 and she was like 40, something like that. In the film, they're both in their 30s. It's just a, a guy who lives in the town who, who runs, the, runs what's left of the local video store, which has become a, a coffee house, basically. Um, and this actress comes to town. They're both about the same age. And it came out really, really well. It's, it's a really beautiful movie. And I was very happy with it. Um, so there were those. And then I was hired to adapt a bunch of books along the way. I, I adapted two of the... Uh, there's a series, a mystery series called The Flower Shop Mysteries. And 
and uh, Hallmark did three of them, and I wrote the first two. And Brooke Shields was the star of it. Cool. Brooke Shields and Bo Bridges were in it. Was in it, and uh, um, and that was great. Do you ever go on the set of these? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. You know, uh, mostly they're filmed in Canada. Yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of hard to uh, you know to to do that, and there's not always that much you know on a set there's not always that much of a place for the writer per se. Right. You know, you can stay there for a couple of days and watch them shoot the scenes and put the headphones on and sit in Video Village and chat with everybody. It's fun, but. You know, unless you're there to like really get your Brooke scenes. Shields selfie exactly. and get out. You know, that's right? exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know? And then sometimes the films that are shot here, I'll go, I'll go to the set more. I'll go, you know, two, three times. But again, you know, it's, yeah. it's just there's not that much to do. Sure. Um, I'm just concerned about you know doing the work, and if they have, if they want to make something better, great. Let me know. You know. Um, so I did those. I, I adapted a, a book called My Boyfriend's Dogs, which, which was one of my favorite things to adapt because it was all about dogs and a, a woman who ends up collecting three ex-boyfriend's dogs until she finds the right, the right guy with the right dog. Right. Uh, Erica Christensen starred in the man. She did a great job. Um, uh, I adapted a movie called, uh, book called uh, The Christmas Angel, which turned into a really nice movie called Angel of Christmas. Um, which was uh, 2015 at Christmas. Um, and then, you know, just pitched ideas along the way, did a couple of mysteries, some more comedies. It's a, it's a you know, it's, it's they, they do a lot of movies. They, 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 um, they, um, uh, they need a lot of material. And the nice thing about, you know, working there is that they make the movies. You know, it they get they, made. They don't sit in development. You know, they, yeah. get, they get made, they move pretty quickly. You know, it's quality stuff, and and people watch them. I mean, that's the people funny. love those kind of movies. The funny thing is, when I when, when I sold the wish list to, to Hallmark, and people would say, you know, so where's it going to be? I said, oh, on the Hallmark Channel. And they go, oh, the Hallmark Channel. Now, if I mention something's on the Hallmark Channel, they go, oh my god, the Hallmark Channel. I love the Hallmark Channel. I've, I I live for those holiday movies. It's like a very over, comforting very in a way, comforting. and it's not a lot of stuff that's being done. Other, who's doing romantic comedies? Yeah, Hardly anybody. Few. Yeah, very few. What does it mean the Hallmark guys a, a script? Uh, you know, just to sort of uh, make them cleaner. You know, like they don't. There's no cursing. Um, right. You know, there's, there's not there's not you know there's not a lot of sex. Uh, uh, you know, it's kind of it's um, they don't they don't look for them to be stodgy or anything like that. They really look for them to be smart and hip and funny and and uh, you know and all of that. Um, but there's a certain tone. There's a certain tone. You know, it's not a sappy tone, a, a treacly tone, or anything like that. It's just a kind of ultimately there's an upbeatness to, to right. They're not jade. There. There's a not a lack of jade. Right, right. But you know, our our main characters who are mostly generally women. Right. Um, you know, they're doing something wrong. They're they need to learn something. They they got to get it together. You know, they meet a guy who may also be doing something wrong. But you know, their baggage goes together basically, and they help each other make it work. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a you know classic dynamic, you know, uh, a, a romantic dynamic. Um, but then they also do dramas. You know, they do do really interesting dramas, and a lot again, they do a lot of book series, book adaptations, and all that. So yeah, it's so, and they've kept you busy. Yeah, yeah, they that's so pro, great. Pro it's been fantastic. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. Really good. Yeah, because even if you were to sell a big Hollywood movie. Yeah. It's not necessarily you, you're starting again the next yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. you kind of yeah. got a little. Yeah, it was a very, out. very good string of, of productions and really fun to work on. Really Can you watch them now? Are they available somewhere yeah, now? Yeah, they, you... they, well, first of all, they rerun a lot of. Yeah, them. you know, they, they definitely rerun a lot of them, and and some of them are available on Amazon. Um, I don't think any of them stream like none of them stream on Netflix or, or Amazon, but a few of them are, are available on on DVD. Um, and uh, and again, mostly they all rerun at some point or another on on, on Hallmark or the Hallmark Movies and Mysteries channel. You just have to find it. Which one do you think turned out the best? Do you of have all a favorite? Them? Oh yeah. Um, well, my favorite one um, is "Hitched for the Holidays," which which was "Hitched for the Holidays." Yeah, yeah, Come yeah, on, what yeah. a title! I mean, really. Um, and it, it's it's just it's I have to say with all due modesty, it's a hilarious movie. 
Um, and it's um, uh, it's about it was with Joey Lawrence. Um, I used to love him so much. Was, I had a Joey Lawrence doll. Oh my god! <laughs> but, I, but I took it to a like a white elephant Christmas party <laughs> recently, and I felt like somebody else could it have was it. Time. It was, it was time. time. Yeah, yeah. He didn't look like the doll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like Joey Lawrence because he's straight, but he has gay vanity. Uh-huh. Yes, he does, and he's very into his clothes and what it looks like. Yes, and he looks great. And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a very good actor. And when I heard Joey Lawrence was was cast as the lead, I was like, oh, that's good. You know, people will watch it. People know who he is. Yeah. And then when I saw the work that he did, it was like, oh my god, he's fantastic. I mean, who's hilarious and so, yeah. That's when you, when you work with actors who have who spent the hours in front of the camera that that people have been on on sitcoms and soap operas right. and all of that. They're just they're just so quick, you know. And it's it's such a pleasure to watch. And he was great. So it's about this guy. He's a Catholic Italian a Catholic Italian guy from New, from New York, Brooklyn, or someplace. And he ends up um, he ends up making a, a a promise to his dying grandmother that he'll he'll find somebody. For her to meet that he's going to marry before, but before by Christmas Eve, because it's her favorite time of the year, and so he ends up making a uh, he ends up making a deal with this woman he finds online, who's also looking for a date for the holidays for her own purposes um, to sort of get together and pretend with each other to be dates. And of course, they're kind of oil and water. She's a she's a theater critic for a, for, a, for like a Village Voice kind of paper, and she's you know kind of she's not a Christmas person. She's kind of a humbug Christmas person. Um, no, he's the humble Christmas person. She likes. It. She, she's Jewish, actually. She she she's that she. Yeah. Some of my Jewish friends yeah. are the most into Christmas. Yeah, anybody yeah, I know. Yeah, she's not. So 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 she's so she basically has to pretend to be Catholic. He has to pretend to be Jewish for their families, um, and uh, you know, and havoc ensues. But of course, they fall for each other. You know, who was the girl? Um, Emily Hampshire. Who's, uh-huh. Yeah, she's a Canadian actress. She's very good. She she was in. She's been a number of David Cronenberg movies. Um, she's done, done a lot of series in Canada. She she's great. I mean, it was shot in Vancouver, so so they did a great job making Vancouver look like Queens, or or you know they they, they really did a nice job of it. But I love the movie because it's really really funny, and people always enjoy it. And it, it you know I, I like the fact that that it has Christmas and Hanukkah in it. Um, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you have to figure out where the commercials go? No, um, I. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's not like yeah. writing a <clears throat> hour drama. No, I, I write them like a screenplay, you know, and and they're they're ultimately you know, the movies are shorter. The, those TV movies now are about eighty seven minutes, eighty six and a half minutes um, <clears throat> for a two hour slot. So they're they're but so ultimately there are nine act breaks. Um, but um, uh, but no, I write I write it first just as a script, hundred pages, whatever, and then. As we go, as we get closer to a shooting script, then we'll divide them up into acts because things change so much. And you want the acts to be every act needs to be at least like ten pages or ten, twelve pages, eight pages, something like that. I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's a much better way to write. People will always say, "Well, I write a TV movie, but I don't know what the structure is," and it's like just write a screenplay. Right. That's all you have to do. See, that surprised me. Yeah. I'm surprised to know that. Yeah. Now you're very active in the writers' guild. What is the with a movie like that? Is it like? TV is there a TV movie minimum? Is there yeah? Is there a contract yeah, for TV movies? Everything's good. first of all yeah. as a writers guild member, you have to work for a guild covered co- uh, company. Right. So a company may have different version, different parts of their company. In other words, they'll have, they could have a non guild yeah. uh, company within the company and a guild company, so that they don't have to do everything by the guild because you know they have to pay more for the guild and they right. pay benefits and fringes and all that. Um, so, um, so it gets a little complicated for them, but our work has to be, has to be guild covered because the residuals are very meaningful on these films. So you want to make sure that Cause you, they run and run and run. run and run and run. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they're good residuals. So, so you want to be, so that, that's really where, you know, you have to make sure that you're covered. And if it's guild covered, then of course you yeah. are. 
Um, so yeah, so they're all, all guild projects. Did you always want to be a writer when you were growing up? Well, um, I originally wanted to be a film critic. That right. was, that's what I wanted to be. When I was in high school and college, I was the film critic for the, the paper, the school papers. Um, I, I loved it because I loved writing and I loved movies, and it was a great way to put it together. Um, and, uh, and I was a journalism major in college. But ultimately, um, I realized that I just, it was really hard to make much of a living at it at the time. It's, I, and it's only probably gotten it harder. Got way, way worse. Yeah, it's, just, it's something you can do on the side, but it's not something you can make a living at anymore. Right. Um, unless you're like a staff writer for one of the few you know, right. major papers that are left with a you know, full-time critic. Um, so I ended up getting into movie publicity. And, and for, for, I did that for about uh, maybe seven, eight years. Um, after grad, right after I graduated from college. And then at that point, I was like, you know what? I, I want to go back to writing. I don't know what, but I, I need to write again. I was, I was really feeling like I can't, I don't want to spend my life behind that desk with the suit and tie. I just, I needed to, to be a writer and, you know, be what I call on the other side of the table because I was a marketing, a marketing right. guy. And so, so we had these big meetings and the filmmakers and everybody would be on, on half, that one half of this round table and all of us marketing people would be on the other half. And I always wanted to go You're just kind of inching on. I know. I'm going to moving your chair a little bit. Guys, they seem to be having much more fun. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, so I, so I got into screenwriting, you know, at that point, but, but about 10 years ago, I started, uh, just through kind of a fluke, I started uh, writing film reviews for the LA times. Yeah. I've uh, seen your yeah, byline yeah, in there. Yeah. Yeah. So now you kind of get to do both. I get to do both. And it's nice because, because it's, it's, um, I do like, you know, depending upon the week, I generally do about two or three a week. Um, and so I can do them when I have the time to do it. Mostly I watch things on screeners or links. So right. I have to, you know, it's, it's a matter of time really, yeah. uh, to have to do it, but it's great because it, it's I, it's my my it's my relaxation. You know, I don't play golf. I'll watch movies yeah. and review them. To me, that's just as enjoyable. Um, and, uh, um, and 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 it's it's flexible. And there's a lot of flex, right. flexibility too. But I like the writing form. It's a little same side of the brain, but a little different quad, quadrant of the brain. And, and I really like it. Has somebody you've written a review review about ever reached out to you? Yes. Either positively or negatively. Yes. Yes. I I've had a lot of people, particularly like on, on a, like a real kind of obscure indie film that I might have really liked. Right. Um, they'll very often you know I'll get an email. Thank you for this. It, you know, it made our weekend. It means so much to us. And you know you know it does. And for right. everybody, good reviews mean something. But particularly in that world, and there have been um, there was only one time that that I wrote a bad review of something. Uh, that I got almost harassed by the filmmaker, uh, who was um, meaning more than one encounter. Yeah, meaning more than one. Like you know, it was all like on email and, right, and yeah, yeah. Facebook or whatever. Um, but ultimately, and ultimately, the, the LA Times legal department was about to step in. Um, and, wow! And, and it, all, it all kind of stopped. It wasn't threatening, like oh, I'm going to you know you know burn your house down. It was just like they wanted a retraction, <laughs> and it was like that's the review. And and, yeah. and and the director was like, but so many people we've shown it to like this movie. And I said, well, good. Then you accomplished your goal. You know, yeah. it's just an opinion. Um, but uh, yeah. So but that, but but it hasn't happened much. Does your ex- experience as a reviewer? How does that affect you as the person being reviewed? Yeah, say? yeah. It's like, does it give you a different perspective? It does. Well, first of all, I you know I um, I always think as a writer myself, as a screenwriter, I feel really qualified to to, to critique a, a movie, you know, vis-a-vis structure and and dialogue and storytelling and you know, which which really is the the, the basis of, of of films. You know, like if you don't have a, a script that works, you're not going to have you know, you're not going to have a movie that that's going to work. So I feel, I feel really qualified to do that. And I'll, and I'll always feel that way. Um, and I have a great love of movies, so I'm always on the side of the movies. I want them to work. No critic ever wants to sit through a bad movie. You know, it's an, it's an hour and a half, two hours of your life. You're not going to get back. And then you have to write about it. 
Right. Um, so it's a lot. You know, it's, it's a lot. You know, you want these movies. You want these movies to be to be good. Um, but having been reviewed myself a lot, I mean, all my plays have been reviewed extensively. I had lots of reviews on my on my on, on my TV movies. The theatrical films I've written have been reviewed. I've been on both sides. I've gotten great reviews. I've gotten terrible reviews. And and it's just. And I know it's kind of an opinion. I know it's like, especially in theater, you know, every, every performance is different. If somebody happens to see a performance where, where things are really working, it's a different feeling. You know, if it's, if it's an off night, which happens, yeah. then the review is going to be different. So, um, so I know that a lot of it is just, it's just, it's a crapshoot. You know? Yeah. You wrote a movie that one of my favorite hottie actors was in, If You Only Knew a Jonathan, Jonathan Shack. Absolutely, yeah. I interviewed him like three or four times yeah. over a period of time. Yes, yeah. He was cool. He's, yeah, he's we great. Pals, he, kinda. Yeah, he's, he, uh, he, he made that movie. He really he's did. so handsome. Yeah, it's very a lot. handsome. He, he's a very good actor. It was, it was a comedy. He, I don't think he does a lot of comedy, yeah. per se, but he was funny and charming, and yeah, he, he really made that movie. It worked out good. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's your dream gig now as a writer? Is there well, something you re, you want a, a new frontier, or would you like something to I, sort I, of... You know, I'd love to, uh, uh, right I'd love to write a, uh, you know, a theatrical film, you know, a yeah. big theatrical film. I've written, you know, I've written indie films that have been shown in theaters and, and all of that, and I'm grateful for that and, you know, really enjoy those experiences, but... You know, I'd like to write a, a, a um, you know, a film that gets a theatrical, big theatrical release that that people see that real that, that affects people that means something. Right. Um, you know, I just I, I would like that. That's kind of my that's kind of my holy grail, I think. And and um, and again, nowadays, again, what you write is different. Um, I actually am just starting. I have an old script that I wrote, wrote a long time ago that um, I've updated a lot over time, and, and it, it's. It's kind of back in the zeitgeist now, and I actually have a producer who works at a, a company that has a studio deal. Uh, he loves the script, and we're actually going to start next week uh, re- digging into it and re- rewriting it and revamping it and trying to package it and sell it within one of the studio worlds. Because it's, it's a very high-concept comedy, very uh, it's a bit, sort of a big concept, a hangover yeah. kind of comedy, and, um, uh, and it's for three women. Um, and it's funny because after working on April, May, and June so much, the three women in this in this script are they're just sort of like you know single friend versions of these women in, in the play, and in, in, in a sense, so it's going to be fun to dig back into those women with everything I've learned from you know from working on this play for so long. So you know, I'm hoping that goes somewhere. I mean, you know, as a as a writer, you just you know. You, you want to have, you want to do good work, and you want to see it made, and you want to see it made well, and you want to see people be entertained, you know, um, uh, and you know, you want to have a little impact, you know, in terms of, of all the work that you do. I love that. Yeah. Well, it looks like you're getting a lot of stuff out there, which is yeah, great, yeah, in different yeah. ways. Yeah. Well, I've always been very, I've reinvented myself a lot uh, as a writer. However, I need to. I've worked in lots of different mediums, you know, theater, TV. Episodic TV, TV movies, indie films, studio films, theater, you know, plays. So that, you know, you have to. As a writer, you really have to. You can't just say, well, I write sci-fi dramas. And right. And they're going to be made or not. And that's just what I do. You can't do it. You know, it's just you have to You have to have a specialty. It does, you know, it helps to sort of have gen- a few genres that you really specialize right. in. So they know what to do with you. But, um, yeah, you have to really, you have to really keep, keep moving forward. Do you feel like there's something that that links all of your writing together? In other words, is there the Gary Goldstein yeah, vibe? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I've, I've written some thrillers and dramas and things like that, but by and large, I think my strength is as a comedy writer, as, a, as an observer of, of, of people, of, of human behavior, um, of irony. 
You know, uh, I had a very, very, very good interview with the Jewish Journal recently to promote April, May, and June. And uh, the writer was great. She just had really insightful questions. And she said, is there something about being Jewish that you think has informed your writing? And I was like, hmm, I haven't really thought about that. And then I thought about it. And I said, well, I know my writing is, has a lot of, like, ironic observation to it. Right. And I think, and I've always, even as a kid, I was, like, really, I, I, I could take any, like, horrible horrible situation and make fun of it or, you know, right. turn it on its ear or, you know, try to find the, the, the I mean, in the house I grew up with, it, in, and it really helped to find the bright light of what was going on. Um, and, uh, uh, and I really realized that, you know, I do come to it. We, you know, we, we bring our lives to everything that we do. You know, somebody once said, we relive our childhood every day, you know, which is really, I think, pretty true. So I think this, I have this ironic sense and kind of a wry sense of right. comedy. And I, I, I like character comedy. I, I, I know how to set up a joke, but I don't like jokes that are jokes for joke's sake, you know. Um, and, and so I try to have the comedy be very character-driven or, 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 or um, story-based, you know. This is not just random jokes. Um, but I, I try to write things about people, and I try to put some warmth into it, I hope, some warmth and authenticity to it. You know, sometimes things, I get a, a little broad, you know, but I have fun with it. Um, yeah, I'd say that's it. That's cool. Now, you've been the chair of the LGBT committee yes. at the WGA for quite a while. Yes, How three, long? 300 years. <laughs> that's amazing. You, yeah. look, you don't yeah. look a it's day amazing. over 200 It's amazing. Years. It's amazing. What, what, does that work mean? what does that work mean to you? You know what? It's like one of the best things I do. I love it. Um, I, I, seriously, I've been, I've been doing it. The, the, um, the committee started in 2002, and I joined it late, late that year. And then um, I became the chair, like I think a year later, a year and a half later. It just sort of happened. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. It was whoever was doing it left, and I was right. the vice chair or whatever. Um, and I've been doing it since. And I just love doing it. And, and not only have I met great people... But, you know, it creates a community. And, and I think as writers, you know, certainly, you know, certainly the LGBT community, you know, you can't have enough community. Um, but beyond that, I think as writers, it's so important to spend time around like-minded people and like-minded writers. Um, because I mean, it's inspiring. And I feel like we do a lot of good for the writers who come our way. You know, it, it, it's... Um, you know, we talk a lot, we do a lot of... Um, it's kind of a lot of outreach within the guild itself. And over the course of time, our committee, our committee's always had pretty good numbers, but, but these la this last year or so, it's gotten much bigger, newer writers to the Guild, younger writers. Um, it's been really, really, really interesting. And it's meaningful to me because I love, you know, going, sort of getting people together and, and sort of, you know, it's like holding a class, basically, you know, a, a fun class. Right. And, you know, we talk about, you know, writing, we talk about what's happening out in the world, we talk about, you know, good, bad, and different things that are going on. We have guests in all the time to talk. Um, you know, uh, uh, either uh, producers or writers or directors who are working either are LGBT or are working with LGBT material, um, and I feel like we've really created a community there. And and the guild is great because they they have a bunch of different diversity committees of which we are one, and um, and they're very supportive. And we also you know we there's a lot of cro cross pollination with all the other committees. There's a committee of black writers, there's the committee of disabled writers, the Latino writers committee, and, and all of that. And we do a, we, a lot of a share events and, and all of that. A lot of people are on several committees at once. Um, and it's 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 just really um, I think it's really gives people it helps give people a voice and a little bit of a home. Um, and we put on great events. On top of it, it's just so much fun. You know we, we've had great panel events and screenings and things like that. And, and it's just fun to meet. You know, as many writers as you can and producers who are out there doing it. 
That's cool. It's inspiring. Yeah. How how much of how how has being gay affected your career in Hollywood, positively or negatively? Is know, it a thing? Yeah, I don't think it's a thing. I mean, I probably came at it. You know, came, came at it a little after it might have been a thing. Right. Um, I've written uh, a lot of gay themed material. Um, or, or I have, you know, gay or lesbian characters in a lot of what I've written, uh, sometimes purposely, sometimes, or purposefully, or, but, but a lot of times it's just because I want to write people, just mix of people. Right. Um, uh, and I think, uh, some of the gay stuff that I've written, gay themed stuff that I've written have, has worked for me, uh, career wise because it was unique because nobody else had done it at that time. I, one of my plays, Parental Discretion, which came, which show was on in the, late 90s, like 98 or 99, um, uh, ended up being optioned by Warner Brothers TV to do a pilot of it. It was a, uh, it was kind of a follow-up, not a sequel, kind of follow-up to my first play, Just Men, and it was about the same two guys in it who are now living together, and they're, and, and they're trying to figure out how to have a baby, how to have a, a family. At the same time, one of the, their, their fathers has to move in with them because he's broke. And this is the father. That's the Archie Bunkerish kind of father. And, right. And it was a great setup. And then there are two lesbians who live across the street, and they have a mother who befriends the father. Um, and it was a great setup. It was a very funny play. And yet, you know, it was very ahead, very ahead of its time. Uh, not because of the, the gay men, but because of the concept of having a child, um, which was you know, being done, but not in the way it's being done now. Is certainly certainly pre-gay marriage. Um, and that was optioned because they felt it was something they had not done. And they wanted to explore it. Ultimately, they watered it down too much, and uh, it never went anywhere because they—I think—they just weren't true to what it was that they loved about it to begin. Right. We they, love how edgy this is. Yeah. Now let's take they, out they, the they, edge. They genuinely loved it. Yeah. You know, they genuinely got it. And then little by little, it just—it lost what it what it you know meant. But it was a good gig, and I, I was thrilled to you know to have yeah. had it. Um, the and check cleared. Yes, the check cleared. Always important. Uh, you know, the pilot <laughs> almost got made, which is nice. Um, that's some good people through it. Um, so I think that's been good. Um, if you only knew, you know, yeah. is, is a is a has a gay theme to it. it. Again, I wrote that a long time ago, but but it, but but again, it was kind of ahead of its time. It, it was about a a straight guy who has to pretend to be gay so that he can he can share this apartment because he's desperately in need of a good apartment. And the place he finds has this really beautiful woman living there, and she'll only rent to gay men because she knows that if, you know there'll be yeah. no. no uh, she feels a safety factor, but there'll be no romantic attachment. So right. of course he moves in, and he has to pretend to be gay and go through all of that. And she tells him everything and walks around, you know, in her underwear and all that stuff. And ultimately, you know, it comes out that he's been lying this whole time, and it's how that affects the relationship. But it's very very fun, and that was the one Jonathan Sheck was in, and, and uh, Allison Eastwood. Um, uh, so that was good, and I think, and it got made because it was ahead of its time. So I, I think, and certainly any stage plays have been, you know, that's, theater is just a come-as-you-are party anyway, so that's always, whatever, whatever's fun and whatever works, that's right. fine on stage. But no, I, I think it's only helped, and I, I, I've been lucky that way, I have to say, and now what, what I may hear behind my back, I don't sure. know, I rarely have ever heard any, anything like that behind my back, so I do consider myself lucky, but um, I don't know, I, I, I just have always been able to be true to who I am. And people, by and large, responded, um, and uh, and it's been good, you know. And I also think that, you know, if when you have a unique life experience, whether you're a doctor or you're a coal miner or you're gay, whatever it is that's unique to you, you're so valuable as a writer because people need to go to you for that. 
you have an experience that nobody else has had. Obviously, there are plenty of gay writers, but but if you are the gay writer writing the gay character, or the, you know, we talk a lot in, in our LGBT writers committee about does the industry look at LGBT writers as diverse? You know, it, a lot of it is a lot of diversity in, in business. Is kind of what you can see, what's on the surface, so it can look like, oh, see how diverse we are. Now that's really important, obviously, but when it comes to, to LGBT. It's not always that discernible. And I think also, so, so it doesn't look as good necessarily. And I think also there's a, um, a feeling that there are plenty of LGBT writers and actors and directors. We don't have to worry about that. We're right. diverse that look way. At all of, look at Ryan Murphy. Exactly. You don't have nothing to worry many, about. Many, many yeah. successful out, uh, you know, LGBT uh, producers and writers. So, and, so there's that. But the perspective of, of an LGBT writer is very different. That the worldview is very different. Than a straight writer, we had, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a um, uh, um, a, uh, a really successful showrunner come to talk to us at our LGBT committee once, and uh, he's he's straight and he was great and you know to- so wanted to know what what our pers- perspective was that he needed his staffs to have because he really saw the need for it. But his he, but he also it was a learning curve for him, and I think like anything when you are not something. You don't think about it as much, and you do sometimes need people who are that thing, whatever it is, to just remind you. You right. know, I, I did <clears throat> one of one of the nicest experiences I had last year. I um, I helped the disabled writers committee put on their disabled scene reading night um, because we've done the gay scene many many times, an, an evening of short scene readings of, of uh, gay material, and <clears throat> they've been very successful. So the disabled writer committee came to me and said, "Could you help us out with it?" And I ended up directing half the scenes. And working with all this, these disabled uh, actors and writers. And the disabled actors were so phenomenal. I mean, not only as people and, and inspiring and, you know, some severely disabled people, but great actors. And the scenes all had dis- characters with disabilities. And, you know, nowadays disabilities it means, doesn't just mean deaf, blind, you know, uh, 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 paraplegic. It means OCD. It means depression. It means, you know, many things that, that, that the average person goes through. Um, so it opened my eyes a lot to writing characters with these, you, know, you can write comedy with disabled characters. Right. And I, it's something that I've really, really been thinking about in terms of diversity. So until you're exposed to it, you can be the most open-minded, you know, progressive person in the world, but until you're exposed to something, you're not really, it doesn't, it just doesn't affect you as much. And that's why people need to be exposed to all this, all these kinds of stuff. That's cool. I, I made a note to ask you when you were working in marketing in movies, yeah, yeah. Were you involved working with filmmakers? Was, was there an experience from that time that was like really memorable? Yes, I, I've had. I had. I, I worked. I worked uh, in at, at, for Universal Pictures for most of that time. Right, and, and it was at a time where where publicity and promotion was was still it was still a little old school. It was pre-internet. Right, um, and and it meant and and movies in movie theaters meant a lot more. And we made a lot of movies that were. That were just like what we, nobody would make today. And the studios don't make today, you know. Even some of the hit movies that they made are things that would never be made today. But I got to work on a lot of cool stuff and spend a lot of you know relatively intimate time, intimate you know work time um, with filmmakers and and um, uh, uh, and, uh, and actors. And my very first job for Universal, I was a, a regional field rep working out of New York. So I, my territory was the Northeast, and so I'd have to go on the road with people. Uh, filmmakers or actors to promote their film in the sure. city, um, and that was the best time of all. Those trips 
were probably to this day among the best experiences I've had. So much fun. Because I'd have to go and I was working out in New York. I'd have to go and set up a press tour for, for, for a movie or for, for an actor um, in Boston, let's say. So I'd, you know, I knew what to do. I'd set up all the, you know, the, the, the TV interviews and the newspaper interviews and press conferences and all that. We'd stay there for a, d- a day and a half. You know, you go like city to city every night. You'd be in a different city, and often I went to like three like three cities with somebody, and you're there in person, and you're there with. I mean, I was there with some pretty big people, and who? Were, who? Well, that was you know Meryl Streep was one of the biggest ones, and Sissy Spacek. So you did a little road trip. With I Meryl did road Street. trips, yeah, with, and Sissy Spacek. I spent a lot of time. Are with. you driving? Uh, no, no, There's we, a had, driver. we had drivers. We had okay. drivers. I was just sort of juggling everything, and keeping right. it all going, and all of that. Um, who else? Uh, Kevin Klein. Um, uh, uh, oh God, there's, there's so many. Uh, my, my favorite, oh, Jamie Lee Curtis. She was great. My favorite, my favorite one was Terry Jones from Monty Python. He, he had directed a movie that we released, and he was fantastic. I had a great time with him. Tim Matheson and Kate Capshaw. I had for a movie that they had. This was a long time ago, um, and that was and that was the fun part too because I was really a kid. And and I was with these people who I don't know how much older than they were than me, but they felt a lot older. And here I was, like doing all this stuff with them, and like we would just go out to eat together because they had nobody else to be with, and I just hang out with them, and we go have drinks or something and chat. You know, it was it was just funny, and 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 it was really occasionally you'd have an awful person. Some I had a few people who were just like, if I have to spend five more minutes with this person, I'm gonna, gonna jump off a roof. But by and large, they were anyone people. dead that we could talk about? Anyone dead? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> not. <laughs> um, no, there, some of it was a couple of times it was bad. But you know, uh, people bring. You know, when it comes to doing publicity, and especially if they're promoting something that they don't r- really believe in, and they're right. just doing it to do it, it they, they get nervous, and the, the anxiety brings out a bad side yeah. of people. And other people are cool. I love it. Um, Alfred Woodard, I spent time with um, Mary Steenburgen, uh, just really terrific people. Um, and, and you know what? It was really... So when I have to work with actors now, it's like, you know, I, I, you know, I saw one of your questions was, have you ever been starstruck? Well, yes, I totally have been starstruck and would be today. But being one-on-one with actors and going to a set and, or meeting people who are, you know, honestly not up the level of Meryl Streep or Jessica Lange or anybody that I've spent time with, um, still... I just, I feel like comfortable being with them, you know, because, and, and, and it's fun. I always enjoy it because, because a lot of it has to do with how much fun I had with people on the road. Um, and, and in, and in what I called my cities at, at that time. And you just, I don't know. It's like, they're just people, you know, you just wow. have to be yourself, you know, they're just people. That's cool. I love that you got to do that. Okay. You yeah. pick some questions yeah. from the observation deck. What's your favorite waste of time? My favorite waste of time is, uh, iPad Scrabble iPad Scramble, uh, which okay. is like... Do you play against other I, people? I play against the computer. Oh, you play against the computer. Yeah, I play against the computer, and you can lose just days. I mean, it's so addictive, and, you know, I mean, yeah, I've learned a lot, and it's really fun from a words point of view, but I just... And I, sometimes I'll do it, and I'll just... I'll start doing it, and, well, I've got to finish the game, and every game takes half an hour to get through. Right. Um, and, uh, and I'll be like, yeah, I'm wasting time. I've got to go do something. I should at least be reading a book. I should be taking a walk. I should be doing something. Right. And I'm, I'll just sit there and do it. And it is so relaxing. Uh, and I just love it. And I, it's not, but I do feel like it's, it's kind of a waste in a way. But, I do but it's, like it's it. smarty pants waste. Yeah, it's it's like good yeah, for your mind. Yeah. What's your best random celebrity sighting? Bette Midler at Century City Mall. Oh, wow. That was Recently? Uh, a couple of years ago, I was going up an escalator. She was going down. It was that kind of thing. Um, or, or she, it, That was just really fun. And she just, 
Did you smile at her? Yes, or and, and it was a funny thing because she, because we were kind of passing each other, and she, and she just it was, she just sort of caught my eye at that moment, and I just sort of I didn't wave, but I just sort of smiled, and she sort of like she looked at me like hmm okay, and she kept going, but it was like it was right. nice. I like that, that. Yeah, that was okay. That was man. I could manage that. that yes. Was, yeah. What movie have you seen more than any other? Sixteen Candles. Yeah, I, that might be that's up for there for me as well. Yeah, it could be a tie between Sixteen Candles and Risky Business. Yeah, two of my favorite comedies. I I could watch any. Of, I could recite all the dialogue from either of them. I could watch any any minute of that mo- those movies anytime. I think they're hilarious. I love them. What I loved about Sixteen Candles, and I remember discovering it at like the two dollar theater. Like it's already sort of ran mm-hmm. a little bit, and then going back like two or three nights in a row and taking my friends. But he had big long scenes, like yeah. the scene with. Um, and uh, Molly Greenwald and Anthony Michael Hall in the car. Yeah, yeah. Like they, they, there were scenes they where they, yeah, 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 and they yeah, which is rare in comedy. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I thought that's really special. Okay, what was your lowest point professionally? Well, my lowest point professionally was a high point in a way, but it was low because it was the mo- it was the moment I it was shortly after I realized I had to leave my job at Universal, and um, but I didn't leave immediately because um, uh, and I had. I had to finish out my time there. I was working on a project. <clears throat> so I had like two, I think two months, six weeks left there. And that was just the worst time because I didn't want to be there. Um, I, it was like when they know you have your foot out the door or you're leaving, they, everybody starts treating you differently and you're kind of, you're not in the group anymore. And it was just, I was really anxious to get out and, and it, partly it made me feel like shit. I've wasted like, you know, six, seven years or how many years I was doing that job here when I could be out there writing and doing what I wanted to do. But of course, when I left, I realized how valuable that work that I did was to set me up in the world. But that was a real low point for me. I was really unhappy then. When when you left, you already knew you had... Yeah, I, I knew I was going to. I was. I was going to. I started writing episodic TV, and I, and I started writing spec scripts during that time. And, and you had I, a gig I, to go to. Uh, well, I, I knew. I, I knew I was going to. Uh, I was writing these spec scripts. I knew I had to get an agent. I knew I had to kind of start over. <clears throat> Excuse me, but but I I knew I had something to go to. Is what it was. But you didn't have a, a source of income. Like no, no, no. And, and it was it, kind of a leap of it faith. It was a leap of faith. Um, uh, and. Um, uh, my father, he, he, he had the best line. He he was a very bottom line kind of guy, very kind of money oriented, business oriented, <clears throat> and not an entertainment guy at all. And when I was telling him I wasn't happy in my job, and he's well, what do you want to do? I said, I, I want to go write. I want to be a screenwriter. He goes, well, go be a screenwriter. I said, well, people don't give up the job, these kind of jobs. I make I make a good living. It's you know, I'm, I'm security. security. I'm really young to have this job. And he goes, Gary, he says, you don't want to look back in thirty years and say, I should have done that. He says, you don't want to be my age and come back and, and, you know, do this. He says, he says, if that's what you want to do, go do it. He says, you have a little money stashed away? I said, yeah. He says, go do it. A couple of weeks later, I, I, I call him and said, Dad, I quit my job. And he goes, you did what? Exactly. How could you quit a job like that? Who quits a job like that? And for years after that, he would say to me, I'll bet if you were still, still at Universal, you'd be president now. And it's like... So he, did, he doesn't remember the time when he said you got to follow your bliss? No, no, no. He says he didn't. We, we talked about it a lot. He says he didn't, but... Was there... You, after you left, was it a while before you started making money again? Uh, or did yeah, it... yeah, yeah. It was... Um, you know, probably I left... Yeah, I would say it was probably a couple of years until I actually started making a living. Yeah. 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 Were you freaked out at all during that time? Uh, or well, were you like, this is going to work out? For part of it. Well, I, I always felt like it would work out, but... At a certain point, I was like, well, it better start working out because I need the money. Yeah. Um, and eventually it did. And then I did other work, too, along the way. So. All right. <laughs> What's your favorite perk of your job? Favorite perk of my job is to be able to never leave the house. 
to be able. Well, to, you have a beautiful yeah. place. Yeah, thank you, thank you. But but to, to be able to like sit in my shorts and sit at my computer and be with my dogs and just you know have a bathroom nearby. And yeah, just, just sit there and do it and, and never have to leave. And then I leave enough where it's fine, you know. But uh, but it's a, I, as a writer, this is great to be able to you know to make as much of your own schedule as you can and to sort of you know because I write and work at weird times, you know. But I I, I like that love that flexibility. I think it's such a perk. That's a cool park. Okay, what kind of driver are you? I'm not a great driver. I'm not a great driver. Um, I don't have a great sense of direction. If I have to turn left, I'll turn right. If I have to turn right, I'll turn left. I've lived here a long time, and I always get lost in Burbank. To this day, I always get lost in Burbank. Um, GPS or not, doesn't matter. Um, I think I'm a safe driver, but I sometimes feel like, you know, I have things on my mind. I've you know, I have to pay attention. Um, I don't know. I just, I haven't had a lot of accidents, fortunately, but I don't think I'm the world's best driver. Right. You wouldn't be great at Uber. No, no, yeah. no, no, yeah. <laughs> not at all. Um, how can people find out about April, May, and June? Oh, well, um, it's playing for April 16th at uh, Theater 40 in Beverly Hills. You can go to, um, the website is uh, theater40.org. It's T-H-E-A-T-R-E, number 40.org, O-R-G. Nice. Um, and all the information about when it's playing and what it's about and ticketing is there. Um, and uh, uh, and if you come see it and I'm there, introduce yourself and tell me you you heard heard about me on Dennis's podcast. That would be awesome. Now, do you do any of your own social media? I do. I do Twitter, Facebook. I, my Twitter. Uh, uh, follow me on Twitter, as they say, at Gary Goldstein Seven, number seven. All right, yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. There was six other people that got there first. I think so. Well, actually, I tried. Just Gary Goldstein, that was gone. I tried Gary Goldstein one, that was gone. And like seven is my birthday, so I said I'll just go with seven. Go but with I, that. I'll remember it. Yeah. All right. Last question. Why do you write? Why do I write? That's the best question of all. Um, I like to tell stories. I like to tell stories. I like to touch people with, with words and emotions. And, uh, I, you know, it's just it's very gratifying to me. Love it. All right. Thank you so much. It's been you, really Dan. fun. This has been fantastic. Thank okay. Yeah. Bye. Thanks again to Gary Goldstein. Check out his play April, May, and June at Theater 40. All right. So this happened. I think I saw my favorite movie of the year, 2017, already. Kong Skull Island. I'm not joking, you guys. That movie was deliriously entertaining. Um, Full of surprises. The CGI actually made everything look amazing. And, like, you could understand what was at stake with these... With the creatures. And I just... It was just so fun. And I get Thomas Hiddleston now because he's... That's his name, right? Tom Hiddleston? Anyway, I get I get it now because he's hot and his shirt fits just so. And Brie Larson ends up in a tank top like you want. Like, this movie is full of cliches, but they were fun cliches. Like, the way the tank top fit her was really nice. And there are so many fun people in the movie and things happen to them. I just can't believe how entertaining it was. So that's all. That's I'm just... I, I was just like... Enchanted. I love it. Anyway, all right, that's all I got for this week. I'm heading to Europe um, for a job with Princess Cruises, so my next podcast can possibly be come from, coming from somewhere fabulous. And that's it for this week, so we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.